Would you join me in prayer? Father, now as we direct our attention to your word, we pray that you would impress upon us this greatest gift that has ever been given, your perfect son. Lord, you are a giver. Father, you gave, you gave the greatest gift, that which was of infinite value, you gave to us. What amazing love this is. You gave your son that he would lay down his life and pay the ransom price to buy us from our slavery and make us free. Oh, Lord, what a joy. By faith, forgiven and free. We make much of our Lord and Savior Jesus today. We pray, Lord, that you would bless our time in this word, that you would cause these verses to come alive. We get to be addressed by Jesus today, his, his sermon. This is, these are his words. We pray that you would teach us and instruct us and then break us down, open our eyes, help us see our need. Oh, Lord, we are a needy people in need of salvation, forgiveness, freedom, the kind that only comes from your Son, Jesus Christ. Work now, we pray, in a mighty way, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 4, we're continuing through this gospel. I titled the sermon today, Reception and Rejection. We just finished through the temptations of Christ, and now we're going to move into uh, what Luke wants to bring us next, which is interesting because it is not chronological. It is theological. It's interesting, and you don't catch this right off, but as you read, you're like, wow, it feels like some stuff has happened, and Luke is kind of fast-forwarded. It's true. About a year has gone by of ministry of Jesus. So Jesus has uh, turned the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, and John records all kinds of uh, miraculous works that Jesus has done. So this is a theological statement that Luke believes is important to have up front. It's a, a mission statement of, of Christ. What is it that he is doing and what matters most? Because we're going to be journeying through a number of interactions as the weeks unfold, some miracles performed, some amazing things taking place, and it would be easy for us to miss the whole point. The point is not that Jesus is a miracle worker. The point is not that he can fix things on a temporary basis. The point is, is that everything Jesus does points to something far bigger than people realized in the moment. It points us to a spiritual reality. And these verses should do that for us. They should open our eyes to the mission of Christ as he goes through his ministry. So let's dive into this. I titled these first few verses, the, the Pride of Nazareth. The Pride of Nazareth. Let's just see how this goes. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding ca- uh, country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. You can see some summary taking place. He's going here. He's going there. He's teaching in all these synagogues. Now he's in Galilee and he's doing all kinds of work. Some of the places where he was teaching, preaching, healing, doing miracles, it says they brought all of their sick to him and he healed them all. 
Uh, Matthew records more detail in some of this. Uh, Jesus was on a tear throughout Israel. And what was happening is, is that his reputation was exploding on the scene. People were talking. The, the entire country was buzzing. Who is this man? John the Baptist spoke so highly of him. But Luke wants us to see a summary of this and then the heart of what happens when he returns home. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Now, Nazareth, remember, is uh, not a, a, a significant town. It's not a big town. When was the last time we were in Nazareth? Remember, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, here's, the, here's what's going to happen. You're going to conceive of the Holy Spirit. And so remember that this is, we're, we're home. This is the home of Joseph and Mary. This is where Jesus has been brought up. He's now around 30 years of age, has a ton of memories, and he returns home. Bigger and bigger crowds, a powerful spirit-filled proclamation has been going out. No one ever preached like Jesus. They had never heard a preacher like Jesus, the Son of God filled with the Holy Spirit. And his preaching was only authenticated with his miraculous display of divine power. It clearly, the blessing of God was flowing through this man. And he would heal people, and he would exercise demons, and he would, he would make water into the best wine they had ever conceived of with a word. Fame, glory, and recognition, increasingly so, began to be attached to Jesus, far surpassing John and his ministry in the wilderness. Jesus was now the focus. He was the, the, the latest, the greatest. And you got to think, if you're from Nazareth, you're like, hey, I know that guy, right? You remember when Jake Locker was, was, was hired as a quarterback? What were we doing? Okay, hometown guy. He's, he's from our, our town, right? I remember all of the buzz happening in, in Ferndale. If the headlines of the Nazareth Gazette were to be presented on Friday, right, the day before Sabbath, this is what it would say, hometown son to preach in Nazareth synagogue. The miracle worker, come and hear him preach. You've got to feel this. This is, is the buildup to this moment. Here's a picture of Nazareth. It was a small town. Most people believe at the time of Jesus it maybe had a, about 300 people. They only had one well to draw from. The town is built on a hillside, and so you can see it kind of goes up, and then if you go over the top on this backside, there are some drops. And so that gives us a, a reminder. This is a real place, a real city, real people. They know Jesus, and he knows them. Small town. They watched him grow up as a boy. Now, the mission of Jesus. Let's move to 16b. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those 
who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. There's a number of things that are happening that we might miss, uh, but you've got to try to put yourself in the synagogue here. First of all, it's packed, okay? It, it, this place is packed out. This is a hometown crowd, and their pride couldn't be more uh, tangible. Here is their son, right? Jesus of Nazareth. He's back. All of the stories, all of the fame, it's all built now to this moment. And, and he's in the, in the synagogue, and they're worshiping as they would typically do. It says, as was his custom. This is a, a gathering place. You had to have 10 men in a place uh, to establish a synagogue or a, a place of worship where you would gather for prayer, for reading the, the scrolls, and for teaching and discussing, and then closing with, with prayer. As was his custom, Jesus was there. Now, he had done this his entire life. This was his familiar synagogue. He would have known every corner, every stone. He would have spent hours upon hours in this place, listening, learning, asking questions, growing in wisdom and stature. On this day, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah, now, this is a big thing. The scroll was typically kept in a closet, and uh, the scroll was brought out and handed to him. Happened to be the scroll of Isaiah. No accident here. This is the scroll, and they, they brought it to him as an act of, uh, of, of benevolence and, and honor. They wanted him to read from the scroll and teach. Well, they handed him the scroll, but here's the, the reminder for us. There's no chapter divisions. There's no verses. In this. this is Hebrew, and it is a huge book, a scroll, rolled up. So Jesus then takes the scroll, and it would have been silent. There would have been just every eye locked on Jesus. As he unrolls the scroll, he found exactly the place he wanted to go. He knew this scroll well. He had memorized, I'm sure, this entire book. He knew exactly where he wanted to go, and he went there. And Then he began to read. What he read is a combination of Isaiah 61, 1 and 2a and Isaiah 58, 6. He brings these passages together and then he reads these things. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to, to proclaim and then he gives four categories. It's important for us to not miss how significant the first piece is. This is the third member of the Trinity. This is the, the descending dove at the baptism. This is the one who has been with Christ from the beginning. He is in him, indwelling him, empowering him. Every word he speaks is empowered by the Spirit of God. He is, as it were, anointed with this Spirit, as with oil. And he is going now to do exactly as he reads. He reads of these four categories. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to bring sight to the blind, and liberty to those who are oppressed. Okay, now if you're in the synagogue in Nazareth, you're like, wow, okay, these are familiar words. This is pretty incredible. Jesus has a heart for hurting people. 
That's wonderful. This is like a social revolution, right? He's going to help the poor out. Maybe we can join him in this. And, 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 and people who are captives, oh, yeah, the prisoners maybe, and, and maybe we should do something for them. We could help with this, right? Uh, the blind people, oh, we have people around that we know who are blind. That's wonderful. And the oppressed, oh, definitely there's, there's those who are oppressed who have very little, who have no power, and, and maybe we could join him in helping with this. See, there's people out there who, who are like this. And how good it is for them. Hmm. You see what might be happening here? He says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor. This is a reference to the year of Jubilee. It was commanded by God that on the 50th year, there would be a, a, a celebration, a release. It was, a, it was a, a year of unbelievable freedom. Listen to the command uh, given in Leviticus 25, 10 and 11. You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property, each of you shall reclaim his clan or return to his clan the 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Jesus basically says, every year of jubilee that has been celebrated was not an end in itself. It was a pointer. And guess what? It's on. This is the jubilee all jubilees pointed to. It's happening right now. I'm proclaiming this. He's reading from the words of Isaiah. It says, then he rolled up the scroll. Just imagine how quiet it would be. You hear the pages rolling up. Great reverence and care for the word. We got to see the, uh, the Isaiah scrolls at the Dead Sea Scroll exhibit. Still preserved by God's grace to this day. Special, special thing. And, and they, they re returned the scrolls to the closet. Closed the door. And Jesus comes over. Now, in this time, you stand to read the word, and then you would sit to preach. And so he sat down in what was likely a, a seat of honor or a somewhat raised place of, of teaching to sit, and all eyes were fixed on him. Quiet. What's he going to say next? He says, he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What Isaiah prophesied was about me. When he said the Spirit is upon me and anointed me, he was pointing to Jesus of Nazareth. It says he began to say to them, I think that's a cue from Luke that he exposited these verses. He, he, there was more teaching that he gave. His mission that he described there, that's my mission. It's what I'm doing. I am the anointed one. This would have been so profound, so unexpected, so completely out of what anything anyone would have expected to hear that I, I feel like it, th there must have just been this, this like, what? He thinks he's the Messiah? Could it be? Do you think he is? From Nazareth? 
I think there was a lot of processing that was taking place in this synagogue. A whole lot of thinking going on. He said, it's his mission. This is the Messiah's mission to, to preach to the poor. That, that the Messiah? That's kind of inconsistent with what we had in our minds of the Messiah, right? To, to go to the poor and the, and the captives and the, the blind and the oppressed. I mean, that's wonderful, but, but the Messiah? Let's move on. Verse 22. <laughs> First, it says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Now, just stop there because there is a huge break in the flow in verse 22. The first part of verse 22 is reception. The second part begins the rejection. Okay, the first part, they're just stunned at his preaching, at his, his amazing, uh, unmatched preaching. He is so eloquent. He is just, the way he communicates, every word counts. No words are wasted. He knows his Bible. He is preaching with fire and authority. Where did this come from? This guy's from Nazareth? What happened to Jesus? The world had never heard a preacher like this. Certainly, this synagogue, in all of the sermons given in that little synagogue, never once had there been a sermon like this sermon. And their heads were spinning. Great speech! Wow! It was so eloquent. And then on the heels of that, as what he said began to kind of filter down, then there was this like, well, I, I love how it sounded, but did he really say what I think he said? Then they began to say these things. Is this not Joseph's son? Uh, isn't he the carpenter's kid? Around the corner, right? Remember the carpenter's shop? Little Jesus. You know, he, he grew up here. He can't be the, the Messiah. What do you mean? Isaiah was talking about that kid in our little town? Oh, please. And they move from a reception to a, a, a skepticism. It's just like, what are you talking about, Jesus? We know you, man. In, in uh, Matthew, you read, uh, you know, isn't your mom Mary? Aren't you one of the brothers of these? We know your brothers. We know your sisters. Who, who do you think you are? And it, it's like it gained speed. It's the gas pedal was on. The, the cynicism grew. And Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, reads the hearts. He sees exactly what's going on. He knows what they're thinking. Disbelief spreading like cancer through this synagogue. It says actually in Matthew 13 that he did not do many mighty works in Nazareth because of their unbelief. They were constantly coming back to this. It's Jesus, man. There's no way he's the Messiah. Hmm. Then there was a question of emphasis. Those careful students of Isaiah would have caught this. He never finished what we know as verse 2. He never finished it. He simply stopped halfway through the, the flow of what Isaiah was saying. He left something out, something very important. He left out 
this, and to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. There were many in this day who were as excited to be saved themselves uh, politically as they were excited to see their enemies crushed and to have the vengeance of God exacted and, and, and blood spilled for all those oppressors and those who had opposed Israel politically. Jesus left it out, and don't think that was accidental. He made a statement about his mission. The Son of Man has not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. That's his mission. He is the suffering servant. He quotes from Isaiah. It's spectacularly brilliant. Not only in what he says, but what he doesn't say. And then you have those sitting in the front row. They've got their shoes polished. They've got the, you know, the, the fancy Bible. Everything's just right. Hair parted. And they're saying, um, question, what about us? We're not poor. We're not captives. Hey, we can see just fine. Um, we're not oppressed. By the way, we got here early. We never miss. Um, we had a pretty impressive week. You know, we're in great shape. We're ready for this Messiah. We qualify. You got anything for us? The good people. Interesting that the emphasis of Jesus left that entire group out. Those who were proud and self-righteous began to have a real problem with Jesus and his emphasis. Who is this Messiah that has been so longly anticipated that would come and, and, and concern himself so much for those in the margins? Why is he so worried about the people who seem to be so not important to us? And, and, and shouldn't he be more impressed with the important people? The irony is that he's in Nazareth. An insignificant town. And he preaches these words. And their pride, the pride of Nazareth, now moves from the hometown preacher to reveal hearts of pride in those who lived in Nazareth, blinded without knowing they were blind, captive to their sin without even realizing their captivity, poor but thinking they were rich, oppressed and not even aware because of pride and self-righteousness. Jesus sees this. He knows exactly what they're thinking, and he goes to the heart of this. This, this is spectacular change of, of focus and emphasis. He, he comes right at them with this. He said, doubtless, you will quote me this proverb, hey, physician, did you heal yourself? What we have heard you did in Capernaum, you should do here in your hometown as well. He said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So their skepticism and unbelief had, had taken a, a toxic turn where basically they were, they were in their hearts, and Jesus notices this, they were saying, yeah, I think you're going to have to prove it. You're making some pretty big claims, and sure, you're pretty eloquent of speech, but... 
We haven't seen anything, right? I mean, everywhere you go, you do some cool stuff. So how about you do some tricks and maybe we'll believe you. Uh, show us some cool miracles, Jesus. If, could you just make some stuff appear? Maybe float around a little bit? Make someone disappear? Do something cool? I don't know. Blow the wall out? Then we'll believe. Is that how miracles work? Here's the thing that we just got to observe. Sometimes in our day, we fall prey to the same thinking. Oh, I'm praying, I'm praying. If I could just see a sign from the Lord, just write it in the sky. Or if, if I could just have some tangible, real display that God is there, then I would definitely believe. Did that happen in Jesus' ministry? where there were miracles taking place nearly every day. He made bread for thousands and thousands, and they came back and they're like, hey, you know what? We're hungry again. That was pretty cool. Can you do that again? Because we, you know, we liked it. You can have a miracle happen in your life and still be blind, see nothing of Jesus as Savior of sinners. What this world needs most is not a miracle worker, Tell not to TBN on your channel. The faith healers. Snake oil salesmen. What this world needs most is Jesus, the Messiah, who came to seek and save the lost, the poor, the captives, the oppressed, to give sight to the blind spiritually. This is a physical and a spiritual emphasis. We've, we've got to see this. Jesus was moved in compassion to those who were in need. They had real needs. Those real physical needs were not the end all of his love. You can make a blind man see and he'll still run to the fires of hell with all his might. Jesus knew this. We're going to see in just a few weeks. Which is easier to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, or your sins are forgiven so that you know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins? Rise, take up your bed and walk. And there he jumps up. This, this is the emphasis of Jesus. It's always the emphasis. The, the physical, the actual things that he did that took place pointed always to something much bigger. Something eternal. He raised Lazarus from the grave physically. And guess what? Lazarus died again at some point. Why was it so loving? that he raised Lazarus from the dead. It's because he revealed that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he makes people live eternally. His word. Now he goes to tell two stories from the past. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is the challenge that we have this morning is the limitation of time because these stories are fascinating. The first is set in 1 Kings chapter 17. I don't have time to read it all, but I would commend it to you when you get home to read it. Uh, he begins to tell about the story of Elijah and the widow of Sidon. Now, these folks were extremely familiar with these stories. However, they detested them. They were embarrassed by these stories. These were not stories that you tell reminiscing on all oh, the good old days. Remember this one? Yeah, the widow of Zarephath and Sidon. No, you, you, you don't talk about this back then. But Jesus did. 
to make a point. This is what he says. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land. Now, just, just to know that, that was the curse of God on the land. It was the work of Elijah, bringing punishment upon this land. God closed up the rain and the land went into a famine. People began to die. Widows began to die. Why widows? Well, they were the, the, the most marginalized of society. How were they to survive? Only by gleaning that which was left in the fields. And when the farmer is taking everything he can to feed his own family, there's nothing left for the widows. So they were starving to death across the land. Jesus says this, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Wow. Hmm. The story unfolds. Elijah goes. God directs the widow to accommodate him, take care of him. He arrives and he says to the widow, um, I'd like some water and some food. And she says, I'm gathering sticks and I am preparing to make my final meal. All I have is enough food to feed myself and my son for the last time, then we're going to die. We're, we're going to starve and die. That's all we have. We're done. We're dead. And he says, can you make me a, a roll out of that meal as well? What's she going to do? He wants to join them and eat whatever little they have left. He wants some of it. She does exactly that. She makes the food, and they eat. And then the miracle happens. Her faith and trust and humble dependence happen first. And then the oil was miraculously refilled day after day after day after day. And the, the food that was needed, the, the, the stockpile that was empty is now there. Every day she would come back. Oh, we're not going to die again has provided miraculous food. He sus God sustained them. But it did not happen until they poured themselves out in faith, in total dependence, to take care of the prophet. Here's the amazing thing. Not long after that, her son got sick and died. Got sick and died anyway. Why did that happen? It's the exact same reason that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die. Exact same thing. Elijah the prophet went and he stretched himself out across that dead boy and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and God raised him from the dead. Now, who's got a story to tell? These are Gentile people. These are marginalized people. They have nothing. And God met them in their darkest hour and their response was, save us. Not, yeah, who do you think you are coming in here with that kind of claim? Prove yourself. Why don't you do something first? Then I'll believe you. Poor, overlooked, Gentile from a reviled town down to her last meal. Self-righteousness, pride versus humble honest trust. You see the point he's making? 
he is getting to the heart of the matter. He is revealing the pride of Nazareth right here. This is the pride of Nazareth that they didn't see when they came in. And their hometown preacher is completely undoing them. And their hearts begin to inflame. It's, it's like the, the temperature begins to rise. And all of a sudden, that pin drop moment becomes a little bit shaky. And there's a little murmuring. People are starting to shift around a little bit. What it, why would he do that? What is he trying to say in here? They begin to get agitated. But he's not done. He wants to make very clear what the issue is. So he brings up another story that they would have never wanted to repeat or tell or reminisce about. This is the story of Elisha and the leper. So Elijah handed off his ministry to Elisha, right? And then Elisha was the prophet of God and he was going around and there is a story here that Jesus tells. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. None of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Okay, another story, fascinating story of the Old Testament. Let me give you the, the bullet points here. First of all, we need to know who this Naaman is. Jesus brings him into the mix here. Naaman was a Syrian terrorist. He was a Gentile enemy military captain who had been quite successful at killing Israelites. He was constantly coming in and raiding the borders and attacking and killing, even kidnapping a little girl and hauling her off with him to serve him in, in his house. Oh, and by the way, just in case that we don't detest him enough, right? If we're in this the synagogue, he reminds the people that uh, he was a leper. He was unclean. He was the one who was to be kept far away. You can't paint a picture of more resentment than this man. And God sends Elisha to him. You know how it happened? If the little girl grew up and saw him suffering with this, this skin disease, and she says, you know what you should do? You should go and ask of the prophet in Israel. And, and he would heal you. So he sends word to Elisha. Elisha comes and he says, here's what you're to do. You're to go to the Jordan River and dip yourself seven times and you'll be healed. It's interesting how he responded. His initial response was this. Um, <laughs> you want me to go wash in that foreign, dirty river? But listen, in Damascus, man, we got clean rivers. Why would I ever wash myself in that foreign, dirty river? This is nationalistic pride. This is a superiority complex. And it is exactly what Jesus witnesses taking place in the synagogue. And then he stops. And he thinks more about it. And this amazing young gal encourages him to realize what he has been given by the words of Elisha. You don't realize your healing is right there. You fool, don't be so proud. Humble yourself and go wash in the Jordan. So he does. He humbles himself. 
And he trusts and he obeys the word of the prophet. And he goes and he washes in the Jordan. And he is healed. And he is so overjoyed with his healing. He is a worshiper of God alone now. In a foreign land. God shows grace to those who humble themselves and acknowledge their need. Humility, trust, and obedience on display. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to draw their attention to the elephant in the room, which is their heads are so big, filled with pride, that they can't receive the reality that they are the poor ones, that they are the blind ones, that they are the ones who are captive and oppressed. They need freedom. And they look at the one who brings it and offers it, and they hate him. They hate him. All who acknowledge their desperate need and humbly trust in Jesus will find deliverance. Those who qualify are those who realize they don't qualify. This is the heart of the matter. Now, thank you kids for coming back. I need a, an angry mob. An angry mob. Now remember, we're just acting here, okay? So we're not, we're not looking for any actual violence. Just preface that. But guys, uh, you know, I need some big guys because you're going to have to manhandle me and drag me around a little bit here. And then... Um, all you kids, you can help out as well. You kick, kick my feet, you know, pull my ear, okay? All right, come on down, angry mob. I need your help. All right. Now, here's where we're going to start because we're over here in the synagogue. All right, we got the angry mob. They're coming. Oh, man, they're all coming. Here we go. Now, let me read what happens, and then we'll, we'll act this out, okay? When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with, with wrath. What does that look like? Angry mob. Ah! Ah! Yes. Okay. Now, they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff and kill him. Okay, so we're in the synagogue. That's the brow of the hill up there. You're going to have to drag me up there. Okay, so get my hands dragging me oh man oh oh wow oh, careful careful i don't want to hurt anybody this is an angry mob oh yeah hold on i'm tripping on somebody here okay okay they get him to the brow of the hill now their goal as he pushes like this there's the brow of the hill and and that's the cliff and then here's what they would do they would throw him down and then they would throw stones down until he was dead that's their plan. Hey, forget the worship service. This service never finished. There's no closing prayers. This is mob violence. They just release their rage. Just pause here and consider this. All these people, they're friends, neighbors. They have witnessed the raising of a sinless child in their, in their town. They have been privy to witnessing the only human being who's ever lived and never sinned. The, literally, the perfect neighbor. The perfect neighbor in every way. The most loving, selfless, loyal friend. And look at what they're doing. I want you to see the connection between Hosanna and crucify. 
their goal is to throw Jesus down. And I call this miraculous irony because the miracle that they wanted to see was not this one. They wanted to see a miracle, but not now. We're going to kill him. And here is what Jesus does. Okay, get ready to throw me. Just gonna, yeah, ready? One, two, stop. Everybody freeze. Freeze right where you're at. And you got to let go of me. Okay? Look at that. You're frozen. You're frozen. At the very last moment, he passed through their midst and went away. Now, here's the, just think about it. He didn't have to let them drag him up to the brow of the hill. It was a significant distance. He waited to the very last moment, and then he froze them up somehow or another. And I think he looked him in the eye with love in contrast to their violent hatred. With a father forgive them, they know not what they do. And he passed through their midst. And he just walked away. Power untouchable. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down of his own accord. He came to seek and save the lost, the captives, the, the blind, and the oppressed. The very people that sought to kill him, that's his mission, and they didn't know it. Thank you, guys. You're unfrozen. Luke wanted us to see that near the front of this gospel. He wanted us to understand we have a Savior who was opposed. He was rejected by His own. Despised, hated. And He was a suffering servant who gave His life to save sinners like you and me. But for the grace of God, we're blind. We're, we're poor. We, we have nothing. We have nothing with which to save ourselves. We are captive to the enemy. He is master over us. He leads and directs. We are, we are in the dark. We, we hate the light. If it's not for God's grace, we run to the fires of hell and we get exactly what we choose. Hmm. The poor, the captives, the blind and the oppressed. These are the people that Jesus brought His mission to. And by the grace of God, those who cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me, the sinner. Those who are saved. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. If you stand before the God of heaven and he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What are you going to say? What comes to mind? Well, I, you know, I tried to be a good person. Compared to other people, I'm not bad. That bad. Sure, you know, I, this or that and the other, but, but, you know, I never killed anybody. Well, they almost did, right on the precipice there. Yeah, I was really religious. I was just 
genuine, right? I believed. In what? Well, that doesn't matter, does it? I was just vulnerable and, and honest and authentic and genuine. All the buzzwords of the day. I tried to be everything that I could be to my fellow man. And, and, and here's my long list. Filthy rags. The only answer to give if that question is posed is this. I bring nothing. I acknowledge I don't deserve your heaven. I don't deserve forgiveness. I deserve hell and wrath forever. Eternal fire. That's what I deserve. That's the wages I have saved up by my rebellion and sinful deeds. I am guilty. And I only have one claim. Jesus Christ died in my place. That I could be free and forgiven and live and be called your son. That's my only plea. Jesus. I cling to him. Let's pray. God, I pray even now that you would be stirring and working in hearts and lives open eyes, I pray. Blinded by sin and self-righteousness, by pain and hurt and heartache, blinded to, 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 to look to idols and, and works to save, there is only one Savior. Lord, stir in the hearts of those oppressed who've been the recipients of horrible pain and assault and sin. Bring captives out of their chains and break them free. Meet us, O oh God, in our poverty with the riches of Your grace in Jesus Christ. We draw attention to the Savior who came to seek and save unworthy sinners like me and everyone in this room. And we glory in Him Great are you, God, and great is the salvation we know in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.